Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. I'd like to welcome you all here tonight and acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. My name is Professor Glenda Sluger. I'm the director of the Laureate Research Program in International History. And like you, I think, like all of you, uh, the history program that I run is very concerned about the world in which we live and what's going on. And a university is a wonderful place to try and understand really more about our contemporary world. And sometimes that requires us to travel back into the past and to bring to bear all kinds of knowledge onto the problem at hand. And of course, tonight we want to find out more about those polar parts of the world that really aren't on the public uh, agenda very much. We know about them, but we don't really hear that much informed discussion. And we're very lucky this evening to have three experts on the Antarctic, none of whom are scientists as such. They're all social scientists of a kind. So we have a lawyer, an historian, and a literary studies and cultural studies expert on the Antarctic. So we have very different and I think you know, valuable and interesting perspectives to bring to bear on what is what an, an empty space not so much in our imaginations, but in, I think in the circulating knowledge about the rapidly changing world and the points of crisis. And the Antarctic, like the Arctic, has become uh, very much a focal point for thinking about the major challenges in the contemporary period, whether we think about geopolitical challenges or, of course, the climate crisis. So my job tonight is really to try and... Um, draw out some of the uh, expertise that's going to be on display tonight and to allow you to ask questions of the speakers after they've had a chance to present to you some of the work they're doing and why they think it's important about thinking about our contemporary condition and what is happening in the Antarctic itself. So I'm going to um, introduce them in reverse order and uh, then we'll get going. So our third speaker tonight will be Professor Elizabeth Lean, just here to my left, who has degrees in physics and literary studies, and that's quite a combination. And she's interested in building bridges between disciplines and particularly in bringing the insights of the humanities to the study of the Antarctic. She's based at the University of Tasmania, where her position is split between the School of Humanities and the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies. She's a former Australian Antarctic Arts Fellow. Did you know that there, these things existed? It's a wonderful thing. Many of us will want to find out how to become one. And she currently co-chairs the Humanities and Social Sciences Wing of the International Scientific Committee on Antarctic Research. Her recent books include Antarctica and Fiction and South Pole, Nature and Culture, and I'd recommend them to you both uh, as wonderful insights into this Im imaginary world of the Antarctic. By the way, you should uh, know that uh, on that website where you registered, if you didn't notice before, there is in fact a reading list that you might find useful for after this event. Our second speaker will be Dr. Rowan Howard, who is a junior research fellow in the program that I run at the University of Sydney. 
and he completed his PhD on the ideological origins of the Australian Antarctic. And Rowan is a goldmine of information about the Antarctic. It has an extraordinary human history as well as natural history, and we'll find out more about that. It's not all very, um, uh, shall we say, positive. <laughs> Some of it's a bit dark, uh, but we need to know that past as well. And Tim Stevens is Professor of International Law and the Australian Research Council and Future Fellow at the University of Sydney Law School. He has a long-standing interest in polar governance, and in 2017 he attended the Antarctic Treaty Consultative Meeting in Beijing as an academic observer with the Australian Government Delegation. His uh, research, uh, funded by the Australian Research Council, examines the implications of the Anthropocene for international law. So each of these scholars is engaged in their discipline and thinking about the Antarctic from that perspective, but each of them also brings a really urgent sense of the value of their research by our understanding of the Antarctic. So I'm going to pass the floor over to them and we're going to start with Professor Stevens. Away you go, Tim. Thank you very much. Um, so my task in the small amount of time I've got to to uh, to speak is to give you a bit of a flavour flavor for how we govern Antarctica uh, and the Arctic for that matter and how we might do so a lot better in this era that we are now increasingly call the Anthropocene or the, or the human era. So the Antarctic, let's start with the Antarctic, it's governed by a really remarkable international legal regime that was first crafted really seriously in 1959 with the conclusion of the Antarctic Treaty. And a few years ago with a, with a colleague, um, we spent some time trying to collate all the basic legal documents about Antarctica that have been produced since the, the 1950s. And this is the product. Um, it runs to, I don't know, a thousand pages or so. Um, that's actually only a small slice of the, the voluminous law, the, the huge amount of law that applies to this space. And it must be said, it's been a very successful body of law. This image up here is of the former Australian Prime Minister Robert Menzies addressing the very first Antarctic Treaty consultative meeting in Canberra in 1961 when the Antarctic Treaty formally entered into force. And really the genius of the Antarctic Treaty is that it says to the seven claimants, Australia being one of them, uh, we're neither going to recognise or not recognise your sovereign claim to Antarctica. We're going to put it on ice, and we use that cliche all the time because it's perfectly apposite, where we're going to put it on ice and we're going to create this unique legal construct to enable the uh, demilitarization or the non-militarization of Antarctica. We're going to promote scientific cooperation and international um, peace really, in this, this unique region. And over time, the Antarctic Treaty has been added to by other treaties so that we now talk of an Antarctic Treaty system. And really the most important recent turning point in the Antarctic Treaty system occurred in the late 1980s. And you would have seen lots of news about this recently with the passing of another Australian Prime Minister, Robert Hawke. When Bob Hawke passed away, we were reflecting on aspects of his legacy, including his critically important role in preserving Antarctica's environment. And he was one of 
uh, two figures. This is uh, the, the former French Prime Minister, uh, Michel Rocard. Uh, uh, he and Bob Hawke were really the linchpins in the campaign to put the mining convention, the Wellington Convention, to one side and instead to adopt what's called the Madrid Protocol, which bans mining. And before we will get this question, I'm sure at the end, people will say, when does the mining ban end? Doesn't it end in 50 years? And the answer to that is no. There's no, there's no timeline for the end of the mining ban. It applies indefinitely and hopefully permanently. Um, and Antarctica has very much been, been locked up nicely to, to protect the environment. But my research has been focused more recently on looking at well, what, what do we do now in terms of governing Antarctica? Now, if you've uh, been following the press over the last couple of weeks, you will have seen stories dealing with issues such as the record melt of ice in Greenland. Uh, so much ice is melting in Greenland at the moment that it would cover the whole state of Florida and the United States in a couple of inches of water. It's probably contributed about 0.1 millimetre to global sea levels. Now, Greenland, if it all melts, will add about seven metres to the world's uh, sea level. If Antarctica melts, it's about 58 to 60 metres. Now, um, this image here from NASA shows what's happening in terms of ice mass loss in Antarctica. And I'm sorry to say it's not a very pretty picture. So, Antarctica is losing a lot of ice from the ice shelves and the ice sheets. Uh, West Antarctica, the, the, the dark colours there on the left, is more of a concern than East Antarctica at the moment. But if glaciers like the Thwaites in the West Antarctic or the Totten in the East Antarctic go, uh, we're going to see quite rapid changes. Now, I can only just kind of summarise where the science currently stands, but um, it seems to be that the Paris Agreement target of 1.5 to 2 degrees um, increase or controlling the global temperature increase to that amount is probably the limit to a stable Antarctic um, ice, ice sheet or ice sheets. Um, now, it's going to take many centuries for it to melt entirely, um, but uh, it could, we could get you know, multi-metre sea level rise much quicker than, than we think. And I know my time's about to go. Um, just would note that there's a great report going to come out at the end of the year. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is going to hand down its special report on the cryosphere and the oceans and we'll get more of a feeling there as to where we might be going. Um, uh, and this, this is you know, why we're worried. This, this kind of puts it comically, but Antarctica can bite back um, very significantly, right? Antarctica is going to kick us pretty hard um, if we don't take steps um, immediately to try and address um, these issues. Now, what can we do before I hand over to, 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 to Rowan? Um, I had the great privilege, as Glenda mentioned in 2017, to be an academic observer with the Australian government delegation to an, to an Antarctic Treaty consultative meeting in Beijing. And the, I saw firsthand how the Antarctic Treaty system is such a polite and genteel uh, system. Uh, people talk in, in very hushed tones and in bureaucratic language about how we can protect Antarctica uh, from everything, from drones, tourists, oil spills, and uh, it's been hugely successful in doing all of that. But where it's, I think, fundamentally failed 
is looking at the bigger picture. We've had virtually no big picture looking at Antarctica since Bob Hawke and the late 1980s. Uh, it's been kind of out of sight, out of mind. Uh, and it's really time, and thank you for all of you for coming tonight and thinking about it, it's really time to elevate the profile again of the polar regions and, and bring them home because what happens in the polar regions doesn't stay in the polar regions. Uh, it will affect us all. If you think about the region, most territories in the world do have representation via political sovereignty, mm. and Antarctica is kind of these wedges of sovereignty. Um, what about a kind of diplomacy that represents Antarctica? Is that mm. possible rather than uh, national interests? Galenta, I think it is. And so let's contrast the Antarctic with the Arctic. So in the Arctic, uh, the Arctic is a sea surrounded by land. So it's a sea that's girt by land whereas Antarctica is land girt by sea, like, like Australia. And the Arctic has all these people, including Inuit people, uh, and a number of territories up there. But nonetheless, the five main Arctic states and then the additional three that form the Arctic Council have quite a unified voice. Uh, and they do things like turn up to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change and say, uh, we must address climate change, otherwise we're going to have no Arctic um, there's no Antarctic equivalent to mm. that. Uh, and any proposals to try and do that have been very um, sternly rebuffed. So, an example, 2012, the Australian government uh, put a proposal to the Antarctic Treaty Consultative Meeting that there should be a dialogue with the UNFCCC about climate change, and it was voted down on the floor. So, we don't have that. So, unfortunately, yeah, we don't have that sense of collective diplomacy representing Antarctica. We've got individual nations that say some things and some nations are better than others at doing that. But mm. yeah, we, 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 we don't have that, sadly. Okay, thank you very much, Rowan. So one of the most enduring and influential ideas about the polar regions is that they are pristine, untouched wilderness areas, protected, as Tim has said, by a successful international system. Tourism companies, are advertising cruises to Earth's most pristine wilderness. You might have seen reports recently about how plastic contamination has reached Earth's last wilderness. Uh, and even the description for this event referred to the need to protect these pristine wilderness areas. So the underlying assumption is that the polar regions have, until now, largely escaped the damaging effects of human activities. And this is particularly the case with Antarctica, which is widely seen as a success story of international cooperation, primarily because the Antarctic Treaty system was able to preserve the region before it was spoiled. This idea has been very prominent in Australia recently um, because preventing mining in what he called the last pristine continent has been described as one of Bob Hawke's most important legacies, and there has been a lot of discussion uh, about Hawke's role in setting up an international system of environmental protections for Antarctica, the Madrid Protocol. So the key point is that Antarctica is widely imagined as a pristine wilderness preserved in the nick of time um, by the international system. But the, the problem with this idea is that it isn't true. Humans have been ruining the Antarctic wilderness for about 200 years. So whaling is the best example of this, and whaling in the Southern Ocean dates back to the 1780s, but it entered a new era in the 20th century, which involved slaughter on a truly incomprehensible scale. 
the population of Antarctic blue whales alone fell from something like 269,000 in the 1920s to 360 individuals in 1972. Over 29,000 blue whales were killed just in the summer of 1931 alone. And while commercial whaling ended in the 1970s, the physical remains of that industry are still scattered throughout the Antarctic at decaying factory sites like this one on the island of South Georgia. And whaling wasn't an isolated example. So Macquarie Island is today home to about a million penguins. Yet this is probably a third of the size of the island's original penguin population. You can see a rusted machine in the middle of this photo that's called a steam digester. Between 1892 and 1919, that was used to boil penguins to make oil. And at the industry's height, 2,000 penguins a day were put into those machines to make oil to produce a profit of what today would be $1.70 per penguin. Macquarie Island is also home to three species of fur seals today. Yet we don't know which fur seal species was endemic to Macquarie Island because they're entirely wiped out in the early 19th century. The current population of these three species of fur seals is legally protected by both international and Australian agreements, but that came too late. These seals that are protected, they recolonized the island in the 1940s after the original population was entirely exterminated. And this is a common story across the sub-Antarctic. What appear to be stunningly beautiful natural landscapes are in fact profoundly altered environments. So on South Georgia, reindeer were introduced by Norwegian whalers in 1909. They flourished and they caused huge environmental damage. By 2013, the population, which started with something like 50, had reached 6,500 before an eradication program was finally undertaken. And often these, you know, there's lots of other examples of these animals being introduced across the Antarctic and sub-Antarctic, and often it was to make the environment more suited to human colonisation. And these efforts by humans to colonise and live in the Antarctic and sub-Antarctic have left behind their own remains. Uh, this graveyard from the Auckland Islands, for example, as well as the paths that connect the graveyard to the sea and even the patterns of regrowth on the trees that you can see surrounding it, these are all reminders that this was actually a British colony in the early 1850s with a population of 200 people in the middle of the Southern Ocean on a sub-Antarctic island. And this is one of many similar efforts to colonise the Antarctic and sub-Antarctic regions. And in many ways, the, the famous network of research stations that cover Antarctica today they are a successor to these efforts to tame the Antarctic wilderness. And these stations have undermined Antarctica's pristine status in their own way, particularly through their handling of waste. So until the mid-1980s, human construction um, and food waste was all dealt with by being buried, burned, discharged into the sea, or placed on ice flows so that when they melted in the summer, they would go out to sea and sink leaving behind this kind of detritus of science, industry, and exploration. So at Wilkes Station, which Australia operated between 1957 and 68, when they closed it, they buried 3,000 rusted out fuel drums underneath the snow and left them there, and they're still there. 
McMurdo Sound. This is an unusual image of Antarctica that is far from pristine. At McMurdo Sound, where the biggest US and New Zealand bases are, the bottom of the seabed is littered with vehicles, shipping containers, fuel drums, and beer cans. And the water still contains bacteria from raw sewage that was pumped into the sound. Waste management practices have improved significantly since the 90s, but the impact of toxic waste lingers. So there's still contamination from asbestos, lead, petrol, flame-retardant chemicals, and ships' anti-fouling paint. It's still present in the Antarctic environment, and it's found in animal tissue. And while I've focused on the Antarctic, the story in the Arctic is similar. So the Swedish historian Daga Vango has suggested that we need to think about the polar regions as cultural landscapes. In other words, they're not pristine, they're not untouched environments. They're places that have been shaped by human and natural processes combined. What we see as natural landscapes are, in many cases, degraded landscapes. So why does this distinction actually matter? I think it matters because it shows that the international community and the international system that Tim outlined did not act to preserve an untouched wilderness. Antarctica was damaged long before it was ever protected. But this actually makes the Antarctic Treaty system an even more significant achievement. Rather than protecting an unspoiled region, internationalism reversed more than a century of economic and strategic thinking about the Antarctic. And they began to undo some of the damage that had been done. And this is the key point that I want to make. Rather than a unique one-off example of a region that was protected in the nick of time, Antarctica is an example of how internationalism can halt and even begin to undo established patterns of environmental destruction. Faith in internationalism has plummeted in the 21st century, but Antarctica should remind us that international thinking and international institutions can provide solutions to a certain degree to global problems. So that's already given us a lot to think about in terms of the, of, uh, the, the treaty system, but also the cultural landscapes, and I think that's probably a good point for you, to Ellie, Ellie, to take uh, up the discussion. Right. I think that people might expect someone uh, with a background in legal studies to talk about Antarctica and a historian perhaps as well, but someone from literary studies, what have they got to say about Antarctica? You know, I think we often think as, of culture as being completely irrelevant to Antarctica, but I want to argue that it is quite central to the way that we think about this place. So humans imagined Antarctica before they ever encountered it. We were really late to reach far southern latitudes and had a lot of time to think about what might or might not be there. So Greek and uh, Roman uh, ancient philosophers theorised about a south polar continent and Renaissance map makers drew in its possible boundaries and sometimes added in speculative detail. You can probably see a rhinoceros in the middle of Antarctica there and a, a crocodile down at the south pole. Now, because cultural tradition preceded actual encounter with Antarctica, and because so few of us actually go there and see it, the imagination has an outsized impact on the way that we think about this place. So what are these cultural traditions? 
there's a number of them, and I've only got seven minutes today. So I'm just going to limit myself to talking about one, one which has been very dominant in Anglophone literature and which, is, which still, I think, continues to frame the way that we think about this place. And that tradition is the Antarctic Gothic. Now, this tradition emphasises Antarctica's unknowability, which in turn stems from its isolation, uh, its remoteness, and of course, its extreme climate, not to mention histories of boiling down penguins and things like that. Now, a similar tradition applies in the Arctic, and you need only think about uh, Mary Shelley's novel, Frankenstein, which is partly set there. But I'd argue it's far stronger in the Antarctic, which has no indigenous stories to complicate the ideas that remote societies project upon it, and has long been envisaged, at least in European, uh, European thinking, as lying underneath the planet at its bottom. Now, in this Gothic tradition, Antarctica brings humans who venture there up against something terrifying and hidden. If humans don't respect the place, if they interfere with it, it will let loose its buried secrets and wreak its revenge. It will bite back, as Tim has just said. Now, we see this in one of the earliest and most influential literary texts set in Antarctica, Samuel Taylor Coleridge's poem, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Here, an old sailor whose ship is beset in the Antarctic ice unaccountably shoots a friendly albatross. And when his ship goes back to warmer latitudes, he's followed by a polar spirit who punishes him indefinitely. We see it well over a hundred years later in the horror novelist H.P. Lovecraft's tale At the Mountains of Madness, where a scientific expedition to Antarctica disturbs some ancient alien beings and pays a terrible price. We see it in this um, iconic Antarctic horror film, The Thing, from the 1980s. And again, scientists find an alien buried in the ice. They uh, bring it in and allow it to defrost where it comes alive and devastates two stations. So how is this Gothic tradition operating today? Well, thematically, it's still going very strong in books and films like these. Although I have to say it's a far cry from the rhyme of the ancient mariner to alien versus predator. Perhaps more visibly, it's moved into a related genre, and that is the thriller. So recent decades have seen countless novels set in Antarctica, which revolve around hidden resources and conspiracies and unscrupulous villains. And in turn, we then see these gothic thrill elements escaping the bounds of fiction and being used to frame broader real-world events, uh, particularly in the media. Now, sometimes these are just tabloid sensationalist beat-ups about Nazi bases and U-boats and so forth. But more worryingly, we see this gothic uh, thriller narrative appearing insidiously in more respectable media sources. So here's uh, one example. This is an article published on the ABC's website earlier in the year, where China's Antarctic bases are described as, quote, mysterious outposts deep in the continent's interior within Australia's claim. Language which to me suggests some kind of clandestine military manoeuvre. 
Now, under the Antarctic Treaty, and China signed this over 35 years ago, a state is free to build a scientific base wherever it wants in Antarctica, subject to certain environmental provisions. Now, China can't locate its bases in its Antarctic territory because it has none. And as Australia claims over 40% of the continent, it's perhaps not all that mysterious that some of China's facilities are located there. Now, I'm not suggesting that China's activities in Antarctica shouldn't be scrutinised. I think every state's activities and motivations in Antarctica should be continually scrutinised. But we have to beware of subscribing to a narrative that automatically casts ourselves as altruistic heroes and other states as sinister villains. Instead of looking for underhand activities at mysterious foreign bases, we could turn this Gothic framing onto our own activities and our own territorial claim. The treaty does nothing to extinguish this claim or the other six claims on the continent. As Tim pointed out, it just renders them dormant. As Tim said, the treaty doesn't expire or require any kind of renewal, but we can't assume that it's impregnable to future geopolitical turmoil. So these claims are effectively frozen or on ice, ready to be activated if the treaty somehow dissolves. And in this sense, I think these claims are perhaps the closest things we have in the present day to those buried aliens of the Gothic Antarctic tradition. They're the repressed remains of an imperial past, inanimate but not dead. Polar governance expert Alan Hemmings calls them the zombies of the Antarctic Treaty system. But I want to end by turning away from geopolitics and towards the environment, because to me, this is where the Gothic Antarctic tradition, in some sense, seems ready-made for our present times. Because in an era of climate crisis, the real monster hidden, the, hidden in the Antarctic is the ice itself. Humans, we now accept, have indeed interfered with the Antarctic and were doing so before anybody explored it. Among other things, our greenhouse gases have been warming its oceans and destabilising its ice shelves. Like Coleridge's polar spirit, it will wreak its revenge in warmer latitudes in the form of rising sea levels. Giant tabular bergs carving off the Antarctic coasts are now greeted not as natural spectacles, but as objects of horror and terror. Like uh, Victor Frankenstein, we feel that we've had a hand in creating monsters that are well beyond our control. Now, I don't think we can escape this Antarctic Gothic tradition. I think it's too deeply buried in our collective psyche, and it will keep framing the way that we think about the continent. But we can be more aware of how this and other cultural traditions influence us, so we can adopt them advisedly and not carelessly, and also remain open to new ways of imagining Antarctica into the future to deal with the challenges that confront us now. But what strikes me in all of this is that across the disciplines, I mean, there really is a sense that... Um, the imaginary is important, and we've heard that just generally in terms of the climate crisis, right, that we know the facts, but it's the, the problem of imagination is actually the, 
the real problem mm. um, in terms of action and doing something. Um, so I was wondering, so first, you know, Ellie, do you think then, you know, is it a problem that we imagine the, and, uh, the Antarctic in these Gothic terms or is that actually a way in which we actually confront the, the monster that, you know, humans have created or would you, would you like to see other kinds of imaginary emerge? Uh, there are other kinds of imaginaries, and this is just one of a whole number. So there's a very strong utopianism in Antarctic literature and culture, which comes through in things like the Antarctic Treaty, which is in some ways a very utopian document. Uh, there's a very strong theme of purity, that it's a pure place, and Rowan talked about this. Um, and the Gothic is is just uh, one of those things. Uh, what, what I want is for people to be aware of these traditions so they right. can recognise when they're operating and when they limit the way we think and when they actually open up new ways of thinking. Mm. So for me, it's not a problem that we have these traditions. It's that we're not aware of them and people don't study the Antarctic from a literary point of view. So they're never thinking about what kinds of assumptions are lying behind uh, the way they think about the place or what they've just read in the media and they're not critical about it. So that would be my take on it. And, and if I could ask a follow-up then of Rowan and Tim in that same vein, I mean, in a way, Rowan, you're saying that we've got to remember an international imaginary that uh, informed the creation of the treaty system that in some ways for all its shortcomings protects the Antarctic has kind of had a role in protecting it from human uh, exploitation. But I wonder if, I mean, I don't know what either of you think about this because I was remembering that there, you know, there have been points in the 20th century, for example, where people have tried to imagine other kinds of political arrangements so that um, Emily Green Bolch in the 1940s got a Nobel Peace Prize for her ideas about international sovereignty and she argued on the grounds that the Antarctic was pristine actually and that humans had had nothing to do there, that it should be made an international territory rather than handing out bits and pieces to different nations, which is what the Polar Treaty does and says, Australia, you can have this, do what you will, and uh, not do what you will, but still, you know, um, we've got no sense of the place as a whole. Um, do we go back to that imaginary, you know, to, to the imaginary that created the Polar Treaty or do we try to imagine other kinds of political solution to the Antarctic, drawing sometimes perhaps from past ideas and examples? I mean, from my perspective, historically, you know, the Antarctic treaty system is kind of a triumph of, of real politic over that sort of more idealistic vein of internationalist thinking. So it's recognising that when you have states that have spent 50, 60 years consolidating their claims to a territory that, you know, it's an incredibly mineral-rich territory, there was still a, a reasonable whaling industry at the time that they were negotiating the Antarctic Treaty. So it was always going to be unlikely that states that are that dedicated to shoring up their own individual rights to a, to a, to the Antarctic, we're going to set those aside to create a purely internationalized space. And so the kind of triumph of the Antarctic treaty was that states were willing to suspend those in favor of creating this international system. And the international system that they created is entirely outside the United Nations and deliberately so that it does reinforce the kind of powers of those original states. So the Antarctic treaty is still dominated by those original states but um does that answer your question yeah i mean we have probably more scope as historians to kind of just um hypothesize but and 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 imagine things but what Can about I in law that, yeah so um um 
the Antarctic in terms of the law and the politics is truly unique. Um, and it's this kind of halfway house between sovereignty and pure internationalization and placed in some kind of system of trusteeship. So certainly not that. Um, and there have been proposals over the years to try and declare Antarctica world heritage or to place it under UN trusteeship. I think even the United States, that was their initial proposal back in the 50s. But that's never gained traction because we have the seven claimants. There's actually only one space on earth that is truly internationalized. And I wonder if anyone here knows where that space is. There'll be a chocolate bar for you. <laughs> uh, I, don't think, I can't see any former or current students in the law of the sea. They would know immediately. The deep seabed beyond national jurisdiction is vested in all of us. It's designated as the common heritage of humankind. And all the resources on the deep seabed are meant to be exploited for the benefit of humanity. It is an internationalised area governed by the International Seabed Authority. Uh, and that is, that is you know, really out there in terms of great international cooperation. We, we, we don't have that for Antarctica and we never will because the claimants will never give over their claim. Uh, and so we, we, we have to muddle through with the, the genius that we've got with the Antarctic Treaty. Ellie, yeah, I was going to say it's worth mentioning there is an unclaimed sector yeah. in Antarctica that's about 20% of the continent. Um, but strangely enough, not much happens there. There's not many stations, not many specially protected areas, which tells us something, doesn't it? That the claimants are putting efforts into the areas they claim and other states are putting their stations on those areas too. So, I mean, it is a remote section, the unclaimed uh, sector. Is that why it's unclaimed? But, um, because it's, it's a lot of historical reasons. The US tossed up with claiming it for a while. But, um, yeah, so I just think those claims, although they have been frozen, I mean, people think that they're extinguished, I think, I don't know that many people realise that <laughs> Australia's is quite, Lee, quite Please large. don't tell anyone about this. You know, and one of our priorities as a nation is to maintain our sovereign interest in Antarctica. Yeah. Now, does that prevent internationalisation and international cooperation? A lot of people would say it does. I, I wanted to ask more about this because I find it so interesting that, you know, there's all this effort put into kind of sovereign claims. What does Australia do with it? What is the interest? Because I've been reading lately and I have a sense that there's not a lot of thought put into actually why it matters. And so this goes back to um, some of your own points about the zombies. But yeah. I mean, I think there is a view that because it's a stable system and it's been a very unstable system, if Australia and other claimants pulled out, it would be everything would just be thrown in the air and we could come right. up with something a lot worse. So there is an argument for just maintaining um, the status quo, but you also have to think: Are not aren't the claimants just sitting there waiting for a future in which the treaty no longer functions, and, they and then they can make, you know, make good on their claims? So this is why it frustrates me when someone like China is always singled out as being hungry for resources in Antarctica when we're sitting there with a great big claim, and you have to say why? What are we waiting for, and what are we going to do with it? No. Actually, but Rowan, this is a good point for you to come in because you wrote your PhD on the ideological origins of Australia's Antarctica. So what has been the history of Australia's interest in the Antarctic? So in my PhD that I wrote about, I kind of identified a few broad ideas about Antarctica that have been dominant in Australian thought about the region. And, and one is this economic thinking and the idea that it is destined to become a productive region for Australia. Um, and so there was this long tradition of thinking about 
how Australia can exploit the Antarctic. And it, it includes obvious things like whaling and, and mining, but also stuff like iceberg harvesting. So there was a, a steady tradition of thinking about how you could tow icebergs to provide fresh water and tell refrigeration. <laughs> well, don't tell Barnaby. I mean, <laughs> yeah, so it, it, it kept coming up. So the first person to suggest this was one of the pioneers of refrigerated, the refrigerated meat trade. So he wanted to tow ice from Antarctica so that he could sell um, mutton to England, basically. Um, so there's that vein of economic thinking, but there's also this tradition of thinking about the Antarctic as an extension of Australia. And one of the words that, that came up every so often was this idea of, of continuity or, or contiguity and the idea that Australia has a right to the Antarctic because it is to our south. It doesn't matter that there's international waters between us and the South Pole. That proximity gives specific rights and Australia couldn't ignore that. And this is part of a tradition of thinking about Australia expanding to the north and the west as well as to the south. So the idea that Australia's rightful sphere of influence would be to control the whole region from the equator, thinking about uh, you know, Australian control of places like Papua New Guinea and, and Nauru, all the way to the South Pole and about 4,500 kilometres west to some of the islands in the southern Indian Ocean. So what's the date? So what? when would we be speaking about in terms of when that was uh, an accepted sort of vision? Particularly from the 1880s through to the, the late 1930s. It's really dominant and is talked about by Australian politicians and is shaping Australian, Australian policy in that period. And there's echoes of it even today, really. So one thing that Australia did very early on uh, in the, the, the 2000s was to submit information to a body called the Commission on the Limits of the Continental Shelf to establish how far Australia's continental shelf extends, not only around the Australian mainland and its offshore territories, but also the Australian Antarctic Territory. And Australia came up with this very clever device of submitting the data, but because it's controversial, because most countries don't recognise Australia's claim, it said to the Commission, here is the data, but don't look at it for the time being. But this was a great expression of this kind of assertion of sovereignty and nationalism over the space all the way down to, to, to the south, to Antarctica. Uh, so Australia does a lot of these things to try and maintain as far as it can its sovereign claim. It doesn't technically have to because the Antarctic Treaty in Article 4 says nothing done during the life of the treaty can either strengthen or weaken claims. But there's still this nervousness, this apprehension that if it all goes belly up, that we might have to fall back on these traditional international law documents or doctrines of claim and occupation and effective control, all the things that you need to establish to claim a territory that they might come again to the fore. Yeah, but so what's so interesting to me is that that's not a view of Australian policy or the, or the Antarctic isn't generally the part of how we're taught about Australian history or anything really. But So where's that impetus coming from? Is it an office? Is it, is it lawyers? Is it uh, a particular bureaucracy? Where's that being replicated or even, you know, um, argued for? Well, Ellie, you, might, you live in the hub of where 
this all happens in a sense in Hobart because Hobart. So it's really not. Law- do you think it's lawyers or do you think it's a particular? Oh no, a I ministry? think it's, it's higher higher yeah. than that. It's uh, it's at a political level. There's political bipartisan consensus about. Australian so somewhere are agendas and it gets discussed oh, yeah. in meetings, but it's not more broadly dispersed as a, as a, a kind of an Australian identity, um, you know, no. uh, story. Yeah, I think it very much flies under the radar in that sense, mm. doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Certainly the Australian Antarctic Division's website lists um, seven priorities for Australia and one of them is sovereignty. Mm. One of them is fostering economic opportunity that comes out of Antarctica. So, again, I don't think we should point the mm. finger at other states. And, of course, there's protecting the environment and maintaining the treaty and other things. Uh, and that's um, part of the Department for Environment. So it's coming, it's coming down from Canberra. Right. Um, but, yeah, I don't think it's often a, a topic of public debate. But not enough, then, to connect with the climate crisis and ex- action on that level. Very little. Actually, there's been very little, little political connection between what's happening in Antarctica and, say, the impacts that, that might occur in Australia, which is disappointing. So it's not just sea level rise, of course. So um, we're about to have a bit of a polar front hit Australia over the next few days. It's going to get a bit colder in Sydney, much colder in Melbourne and, and Tasmania. And we can thank Antarctica for that. And there's been lots of great research done on how uh, changing weather in Antarctica, changing climate, affects um, things like the frequency and intensity of drought in Australia. Um, so it would be good, wouldn't it, if there's a bit more of an appreciation of how uh, the continent to the south actually has so much of an impact on on us, actually. This fits very nicely with some of the things Rowan says about the, the, the sphere of, of concern or um, of influence. But... Um, yeah, we don't talk about that much, uh, very little at a political level. It, it waxes and wanes. It depends on the government of the day. Some governments, uh, we've been talking about Bob Hawke uh, this evening, there was very much a priority at a political level, but uh, it's not so far as I can see now, and very few governments are making it a priority. Um, the US government has really abdicated um, all concern with Antarctica. Uh, when I was at the Antarctic Treaty Consultative meeting, I got the sense from the US delegation who had turned up just after the Trump administration had been um, <laughs> elected that they were kind of hoping to fly under the radar and not attract the attention of Donald Trump and he could just ignore what they did and were doing and could quietly go about advancing US interests in Antarctica without uh, worries about what the White House might think. Um, but, yeah, we, we really don't have that higher order interest. Okay, thank you. Okay, so then I think that we're going to wrap up with what should we be talking about? So oh, you can have another go to Tim if you like, otherwise we can go to Ron. What should we be talking about? Um, well, I think we should be talking about Antarctica. Uh, it, it, would be, it would be great for it to rise in the public consciousness again. Um, the Australian Antarctic Division, I think, does a really good job of trying to communicate the significance of Antarctic science and Australia's Antarctic interests. And if you have an opportunity to, you know, follow the AAD on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, um, you can see some of the wonderful things that they do and um, uh, just get a bit more of an appreciation. And, and the AAD is a pretty remarkable institution, mm. actually, pretty remarkable national I'm institution. I'm getting my phone out now. I'm going to follow the AAD. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, definitely follow, follow them. Okay. Rowan, while well, I'm looking for the AAD on my Twitter. I think my answer has to be about penguins. 
And oh, the boiled penguins. Not the boiled penguins. I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight. It's dinner time. So, so treating this anecdotally, that when the Hawke cabinet was discussing whether Australia should sign up to the Convention on Mining, so whether they should set up a system of regulations for how mining could be conducted in Antarctica and decided not to sign that and instead pursue a ban on mining. When they were discussing that at cabinet level, there was pressure to just sign the treaty on mining. And the, the famous quote that emerged from that is, you know, penguins can't vote. There's no point worrying about Antarctica. You're not going to win any votes by protecting Antarctica. You are going to win votes by, you know, looking after mining interests being the subtext. But they ignored that. Even though penguins can't vote, they were willing to set that aside for the sake of a kind of internationalist vision of protecting Antarctica. Even if the, the vision that they were mustering was about this pristine wilderness that isn't true, they were still pursuing that. And that's the, you know, something in the late 80s. So I think what I would say the important thing that we should be talking about is that this nationalist approach is fairly recent and there's nothing inevitable about putting our own interests first. There's nothing inevitable about ignoring what is best for, for the globe. Uh, and it's something that I think we can recover, but you have to remember that it, it's not natural. It's, yeah, it's not an inevitable thing to, to think about it from this nationalist perspective. It's what we have at the moment but not necessarily something that has yeah, to be Yeah, it's a long there. history of Australian governments and people being interested in international um, responsibilities yeah. and institutions and organisations. We can remember that. That's mm -hmm. right. Ellie. Yeah, I'm going to sidestep the what should we be talking about question and ask who should be talking to each other. Ah, okay. um, because I think one of the things that we know now is that Antarctica is not just a natural place, in, indeed, if it ever has been. And while I think it's really vital that scientists at the Antarctic Division and elsewhere continue to study it, I think we need a whole bunch of disciplines in the mix talking about it. So we need the social sciences, we need the humanities, we need everybody talking to each other because we know that more and more scientific information keeps on coming out about what we're doing to the planet and that not, isn't necessarily changing political systems and behaviour. So I think we need a whole lot of voices in the mix. We need to be talking to each other in the Antarctic space about how to deal with these challenges that confront us. Thank you very much. And I'd like to thank all of you for coming here tonight to talk with us about Antarctic. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash Sydney underscore ideas.